You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 30th of July, 2022. The time now is 10.06. Welcome to the Weekend World Show with Asal Ahmadi, live on Voice of Islam, on DAB Radio, Mobile and online 24 hours a day. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and all things current, a message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning 0208 Six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Joining me this morning, as always, is our Chief Librarian at the Battle for Two Mosques, Walid Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, Walid. A little bit cooler today, um, yes. but uh, we're still expecting hot weather. What, another heat wave, do you think? Well, the, the, there's the potential of that, and uh, but certainly we've been enjoying the hot weather, but the 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 hot weather has its toll as well in other ways, mm. that we're having a very dry summer and there are fears of a drought. And uh, fires. They've had yeah. fires, they've had mm. fires all over, and uh, mm. uh, I hope uh, people staying safe and mm. uh, taking care of you know, mm. part of... Islamic teaching, and as is of all faiths, is that uh, you should look after others mm. and uh, making sure that, as you just pointed out, not to be the cause of causing fires around mm. the country. It's bad enough as it is. But the drought is certainly going to uh, affect uh, a lot of people. Mm. Do you think it's going to affect our thinking as to how we should be proceeding with our use of the environment as well? And there's, there's been some, uh, in, I think it's Kentucky, isn't it? There's been... Uh, Floods there as well, and and in Pakistan. Mm. My wife actually commented. She said that eight people have died in Kentucky, mm. and it's all over the news. And over three hundred people have died in Pakistan, and not a not a word on the news channels, mm. apart from the non-conventional channels like Al Jazeera has covered it, which is a sad indictment of the world, the way, the way we look at our world that we're oh, too. Yes engrossed within our own environments and our own allies mm. uh, rather than uh, looking at the world as a whole. Mm. Uh, humanity is about looking after everyone, not just mm. uh, your... So the West, sometimes in the West we are complicit, but if you go to other parts of the world, they are sometimes concentrate the news in their areas and, mm. and their allies. Mm. So politics needs to change, um, yep. I, I certainly think. Mm. Um, and we need to be more caring of others. If we, if that was the case, there would be less chance of having wars. Mm. I would have mm. thought. Mm. I think that kind of disparity is all too evident uh, in other instances as well. I mean, we had that with the migration crisis, with the special measures being taken for uh, Ukraine refugees. Mm. But then uh, returning boats away to Rwanda or threatening uh, people uh, to Rwanda that come in. Uh, Coming across the channel, yeah, but they happen to be of a different color. Th- th- that has been pointed out many mm. a time, and that's why I think the government has gone a bit quiet on mm. on, on, on the Ukrainian refugee yeah. aspects because there certainly seems to be some sort of duplicity mm. going on. And talking of our politics, um, Mark Twain writes, "I am quite sure that uh, sorry, I'm quite sure now that 
often, very often, in matters concerning religion and politics, a man's reasoning powers are not above that of monkeys. Mm. <laughs> uh, what he's yeah. trying to say there is that uh, we don't look beyond our noses, basically, in, in world politics. We, mm. we care very little for the overall picture, and therefore there's not much scope into what we look at than mm. our immediate needs, I think. Mm. I hope that's not a comment on uh, the kind of... Uh, the candidates we have for the premiership. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best we can produce. Our, we we shall ask other of that opinion. <laughs> the best we can produce are a product of uh, uh, our reasoning powers not being above monkeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and and by the way, that that should not be taken as a as a, 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 a slur against the monkeys <laughs> population. <laughs> we should not uh, yes. uh, put the ridicule the monkey nation. No, no, we may, yeah, otherwise we'll get a lot of calls from animal rights. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway, Willie, what have yeah. we got this morning? Well, um, as you said, Azar will be joining us this morning to delve into some of the key news uh, stories of the week. Um, are the unions going to, uh, going to gain support or is the sympathy... Uh, lying with the government is a question most are asking. Also, what he makes of the Tory leadership battle. We just mentioned that a few uh, mm. seconds ago. And the blue and blue attacks, uh, healthy debates or political debacle? And the news review will be followed by Faith in Focus, uh, discussing uh, an aspect of the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, so that's what we have. Indeed. And in. after the headlines, that uh, after the 11 o'clock news... Yes, so later in the course of the program, we'll have Dr. Iqbal, um, and he'll be joining us to give us his view of the state of the world today. Are our politics and politicians failing us? If uh, so, what are the solutions? An interesting discussion to be uh, had, and I'm sure with the typical northern frankness of Dr. Iqbal, uh, he's going to render that, I'm sure, it's, uh, and uh, looking forward to that. Absolutely. And we've got community news at half past 11. Who have we got on? The author, Declan Henry, uh, who has been on the show a few times, will be uh, with us to discuss his latest book, Gypsies, Roma and Travellers, a contemporary analysis. The gypsies traditionally have had a poor PR, uh, to say the least, and he has taken a deep insight of the uh, GRT, the uh, Gypsies, Roma and Travellers uh, fraternity, to tell mm. what he found and share them with our listeners. Indeed. And, uh, the, and sports, Shahid, with us? Yeah, he'll be joining uh, us shortly uh, to yes uh, to discuss some of the uh, key cricket matches that have taken place over the past week or so. Perhaps also discuss the charity shield um, oh, that oh, took place yesterday. Football already? Uh, uh, yes, oh. of we course. Had, we had some lovely world athletics as well, you know. Mm. And, uh, maybe he might say a word or two on that. Mm. Thank you, Willie. As always, packed show with our uh, listeners, for our listeners, um, and both political and faith-related. Anyone eager to comment or share their views with us can do so by phoning 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile, and live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is The Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Right, we'll leave the hmm. first segment of the show, the news review. 
weekend world. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, Willie, the, yeah. the BBC reports that disruption as train strikes hits weekend travel. Passengers endured another day of travel disruption in England after drivers from seven train operators walked out over pay. Aslev union members went on on a 24-hour strike on lines including southeastern and West Midlands trains. Mm, fans travelling to f- the first games of the season of English football league clubs and to the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham were among those who uh, were affected. It uh, added to a summer of misery for passengers after a series of walkouts. Uh, Aslev's, uh, so the latest strikes involving 5,000 Aslev members also affected Arriva Rail London. Aslev General Secretary Mick Whelan, uh, Mick Whelan said all we are asking for is an increase in line with the increase in the cost of living. Soaring inflation is not the fault of working people in this country. It's the fault of the government and its inept handling of the UK economy. This is what Mick Lynch has been doing the rounds on the press and very popular with, uh, with many. This is what he had to say. Well, I don't know how bringing an untrained, non-safety critical inexperienced worker into a dangerous environment like the railway where there are high-speed trains, there are high-voltage distribution systems and there are rules and regulations that have the power of statute. How that will help anyone, whether they're a passenger, a worker, a manager or whatever. I don't see how the use and deployment of students or people who've got no work experience and working for an agency will help anyone to resolve this situation. So as usual, he's just spouting nonsense that's given him to him from some policy unit, uh, which doesn't help to resolve the situations that are in front of us. Well, this government, every time they are losing an argument, they threaten to change the law and bring in more draconian measures that suppress the, the civil rights of people. This law has been in place for decades, that agency workers shouldn't uh, replace legitimately striking uh, workers in a, a lawful ballot. If he wants to do spend his time doing that, that's up to him. There aren't agency workers that can replace our members in safety-critical work. They're not going to be able to run 25,000-volt uh, electricity control centres. They're not going to signal high-speed trains. They're not going to be able to maintain rolling stock. They're not going to be able to drive trains. So it's a bit of an irrelevance, really, uh, to the situation that we're facing. Uh, joining us this morning is Azhar Amri, all the way from Gillingham in Kent. Asalaamu Alaikum, Azhar. Wa alaikum we've got a crisis on our hands. Um, there's an economical crisis, the economic crisis. Uh, there's also uh, issues with the uh, wages, standard of living is dropping. Um, and uh, the, the, the public service people, uh, the people working in the public services, uh, are not uh, getting uh, the pay rise as per inflation, and hence the standard of living is dropping. The NHS staff, many are going on food banks. Are the the unions right in striking, or is uh, the government right not to be negotiating with them? Well, uh, as you say, it's a difficult um, period we're going through, and... Uh, I understand it's not only the railway workers, but teachers and nurses have also put in demands for inflation-related pay rises. Hmm. Uh, the I think the demand by the railway workers is quite legitimate because uh, they haven't had a pay increase since 2019, and uh, things are looking... Uh, um, 
not rosy at all for the uh, you know what we call the essential workers hmm. railway workers teachers nurses so something should be done to help them and i'm afraid uh, the war in ukraine has not helped nor has the uh, response of western governments which is to impose sanctions yeah on russia mm-hmm. nor has that helped uh, which is obviously you know the main reasons for the inflation we have at the moment is kind of twofold at least uh, one is the energy prices as you know gas and oil and this is directly related with sanctions yes and uh, number two is the imports of uh, foodstuffs from Ukraine and Russia so if you impose sanctions on Russia uh, then I'm afraid uh, this is uh, the end result so I'm afraid governments have not been very wise they Mm -hmm. haven't been uh, looking forward unfortunately they've uh, paid poodle uh, our government and um, EU as well to America's lead on this. Right. Things are not, you know, we are a global village. You can't have sanctions against major countries. And their the approach to uh, China is also very poor. Instead of embracing China, they, you know, they seem to be in competition with them. And so this is this this is the uh, this is the problem. But anyway, so coming back to the strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot see what the um, what the alternative is for the unions. Well, rather Mick, than Mick, Mick, Mick Lynch is saying that uh, uh, Grant Sharps is not even talking to them, and uh, surely the government should be in the middle of all of this and trying to negotiate and solving the problem. Are they well, tr- are they trying to do what Thatcher did with the with the miners uh, that? Uh, put them out of business, basically, the unions. Yes, but, well, it seems a very aggressive approach. And the, you know the clip you, you played mm. about um, the uh, idea of agency workers being used? Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that is lunacy, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean for, you know, railway is, is a very skilled... It's a very skilled job, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, know, you cannot have agency workers, uh, you know, doing I mean, doing the work of people who have been trained uh, uh, at high risk work, you know, which is which is matter of life and death in some cases. But working with electrics, or yeah, absolutely, you can probably replace, you know, cleaners or uh, or sort of people serving teas and coffees on the train because that doesn't require that skill, not demeaning those jobs, mm. but just that it doesn't need that skill level. But certainly most of the work that is required on the railway network is that of skilled workers. So surely uh, the government should be round the table, and this is what Mick Lynch seems to be complaining about, the wise and grand chaps who's got the... Um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? That he's got, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's under his control, uh, being the transport minister, to, to resolve this. Yes, and suggestions like agency workers is not going to help. So, like I said, it's, it, you know, it's a very um, reasonable demand. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you have to look at, you have to cross-reference sometimes. Now, remember 2007-8, there was the banking crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it ended up in the government borrowing at least 500 billion 
pounds and uh, increasing the national debt uh, by at least 50%, uh, they had to recapitalize the banks and none of the bankers were sent to prison for their illegal activities. And even now, you know, it is felt that the finance sector is uh, extremely highly paid in the city of London and there's no curb on their bonuses or what have you. Even Labour under Tony Blair uh, and Gordon Brown were seen to be friends of the bankers. So the real workers, the teachers, the nurses, the railway workers, the firemen, I mean, these are the people we have to support. And, you know, uh, it's right that money doesn't grow on trees, mm. but uh, Britain is a affluent country and it can it's borrow. It's the fifth, fifth largest economy in the world. Yes, so it has to borrow. I mean, if it borrowed uh, uh, so much money in the wake of the banking crisis, so for the real workers, mm. which are, you know, the teachers, the nurses, the railway workers, uh, upon whom we rely so heavily for yeah. our daily services, mm -hmm. uh, so there should be some support given to them. And as you say, there should be a serious attempt to come back to the negotiating table and see what kind of staggered pay rises mm. can be uh, given to all these workers. And, you know, I'm afraid we might be here... Um, um, Many months? Two months' time, three, mm. uh, you know, for the teacher strike, mm. nurses' strike. So I think it's going to be very difficult yeah, I think we'll leave for whoever also. comes in. Yeah, uh, do you think that there's also disquiet among uh, the public about the disparity that exists between the pay of the workers and top executives? Uh, I was listening earlier today and uh, to a report that executive, top executives of the uh, water companies, for instance, are sharing uh, 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 pays are amounting to 50 million pounds, uh, where mm. workers are uh, trying to make uh, ends meet in a cost of living crisis. Do you think that's also going to be um, discussed? Uh, and just to add to what Walid has just said, that uh, the, the large corporates are making vast amounts of profit. 50 billion, I think, was oh, yes. the uh, profit made by Shell mm. uh, or BP and, and, and companies of the like. And they, mm. their argument is, what Mick Lynch keeps saying, is that it's not the workers' wage that is causing the mm. economic crisis, it's the profits that these companies yes. are making. And those uh, who have dividends. And for the shareholders, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So what's your views on those? Well, obviously, all these things have, must be taken into account. And, you know, what Walid Sabah said is absolutely obscene. It's not acceptable, you know. Even if somebody says, oh, what about the international market? We've got to get the best chief executive uh, from uh, America or USA or, or, uh, or, or uh, Europe mm. uh, to head these organizations. I don't think that uh, cuts. Uh, um, that doesn't go down well no. with the public. So we must be seen to be fair. And, you know, why the government had to drag its feet on these, uh, what do they? What did they call them? Uh, these uh, profits, the huge profits. Uh, windfall, windfall, windfall tax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So why, you know, the windfall tax uh, cannot, ha you know, because you can't do it retroactively. You can do it from now on. But the, if they had done it three months or four months earlier, then the money would have started coming into the government. They could afford a little bit more. Mm. I mean, all these things have to be taken into account, and I hope 
the you know for example there's a lot of investment these companies have to make the oil and gas uh, away from fossil and into hydro and uh, solar and wind that is fair enough but i think a proper um, cons- consultation has to be done with progressive thinkers you know why mm. i mean the progressive thinkers there are some people who are just uh, will just give you the traditional line oh you know we've got to have higher salaries for top executives and they're not going to really uh, effect put into effect or implement any real changes or fight for the cause of the working people uh with time on our hands to look at uh just to move on and you mentioned about uh uh, or was it? Uh, <laughs> I just lost my line there. No, no. Um, we've got the, the the leadership battle going on with in the Tory Party, who's going to be our next prime minister. The Independent reports the majority of voters want an immediate election, a general election after Tory leadership context polls show. Majority of voters believe general elections should be called immediately after the Tory leadership election, regardless of whether Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak succeeds Boris Johnson in number 10, a poll for the independent reviews. And I, the point I was going to make was that Liz Truss made it very clear that she doesn't believe in the windfall tax, which we were just talking about. So we have Rishi, Rishi Sunak and uh, Liz Truss. Um, and uh, are, are things going to get any better with the change of leadership? And and how do you see this uh, leadership battle? It seems to be like a blue-on-blue battle uh, war. Yeah, I don't think the working class is going to be very happy with the, either either of them. And uh, as you say, the current crisis is not with the top executives who are earning a lot of money, mm. but it is with the ordinary workers with, with whom our sympathies uh, should lie and do lie. So both of them have asked for lower taxes and smaller government and uh, to have inflation under control. Uh, But I'm afraid it's going to be very difficult uh, for them uh, to achieve anything meaningful. I mean, uh, I I wish them the best of luck and I wish the country the best of luck. But uh, I don't think it's uh, the, the the outlook uh, is not rosy, and it's you know Britain is not an island. Nobody, no country is an island, and they unfortunately the politicians in the West think that we are islands and that we can be self-sufficient. Mm. Uh, this is not uh, you know you rely very heavily on Russia, you rely very heavily on um, Ukraine, and you rely very he- heavily on uh, China. So let's have peace. And otherwise, it's, it's going to go pear-shaped. Yep. And these strikes are going to uh, come along quickly, one after the other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't see what solution any one of them is posing. To uh, And, you know, Mr. Sunak is very uh, insistent that his first priority is to get uh, inflation under control. Uh, I think Liz Truss uh, is also of the same opinion. But how they want to do that mm-hmm. uh, with uh, energy prices going through the roof and commodity prices, food prices going through the roof, I cannot see uh, how that is achievable. So what I'm trying to say is that you've got to look at the world and our dependencies if you want to 
control inflation. Sure. You know? I mean, one of the things... in your hand. Sure. One of the things about you mentioned about lowering taxes is that it's going to mean less investment into public services if the, the, the drop in taxes, uh, less money to spend. And in Islam, the... Taxes is part and parcel of its organization, and it requires that that money be spent on public services. Uh, that's the ethics of Islam, to serve the whole of mankind. You're, you're, you're permitted to create wealth, but you're also that those who create the wealth pay higher taxes in Islam. Is that something that uh, the Western world are, uh, in, in, the, in, in the democratic world that they live in, uh, that the economy is very much good for the rich to get rich, richer. Yes. Um, now, I would, uh, you know, like I've tried to internationalize the inflation issue, I think uh, as far as the UK is concerned, everyone is uh, quite well off. Uh, unfortunately, not the real workers, teachers, nurses, and um, railway workers that need our support in this time of inflation. Uh, but... Uh, your point that uh, we need to invest for the poor people. You know, in society, there will always be people who are needy. Mm. For example, there will be widows, there will be orphans, um, and uh, uh, people who are of uh, disability. Uh, so they will, all, And also unemployed people, and also the old and infirm. Yes. So everyone needs help. Uh, now, this... Uh, this uh, model which I'm presenting actually applies worldwide, doesn't it? I mean, Africa is so poor, and what is the West doing to uh, invest in Africa and to make it uh, uplift itself from the standards of poverty which we are seeing? Uh, so this is a very, um, a very valid point which you have made, that we should be looking after the needy, and not only the needy in our society, which is Britain, which is a very affluent country, and as you said, is the fifth or the fourth largest economy in the world. So we should be able to look after everyone. And so far, you know, we've uh, the country has done well as far as um, it has got a very good education system, free for all, a very good NHS system, uh, free for all in 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 many cases. Uh, so, but. We have to internationalize our outlook on many issues. Mm. And this is where I think, and I hope you don't mind me saying so, the West is failing abysmally. The West is extremely wealthy, extremely affluent, uh, and it is no good for the West to be so affluent and people in Africa to be dying in the Mediterranean, drowning in the Mediterranean, and the channel to come to... Uh, uh, get a decent living. So why do we not invest in those countries, Chad and Mali and all these African countries which are suffering so much, uh, why are we ignoring them altogether? And mm. why are we so concerned about our own affluence? Well, Lee, last point from you. Well, uh, is the answer because our affluence is very much based on uh, the resources we are able to get from places like Africa. Uh, you say we're not investing it, uh, but corporations are investing in Africa, only that uh, they're investing in Africa 
taking the resources for themselves and uh, yes, for their own giving benefit. yeah and giving a pittance to the the, the the places they're getting these resources from and therefore that particular model is something that is difficult to get off yes indeed uh, you know I was quite surprised because of this Ukraine crisis just to uh, you know carry on with our leads point if you don't mind hmm. I mean why is the world so much dependent on Ukraine? which is a small country. I think it's only about 20 or 30 million people. You know, I mean, so much is wheat, corn, barley, sunflower, oil. Most of the country, you know, Lebanon imports 80% of its wheat from Ukraine. And uh, Egypt, a country of 80 million, uh, imports about half of its wheat or more uh, from Ukraine. So why is, you know, I'm not saying anything wrong against the Ukrainians. But all these agricultural methods, and, you know, they require in, uh, investment in machinery and combine harvesters and all that. Africa can produce all these things because I was looking at the causes of why Ukraine is so good in its agriculture. is because of the rich, fertile soil and the good weather so they can have, uh, for example, uh, winter and spring uh, crops. And also because of the machinery. Uh, so, you know, we have to look at this Africa, you know, Pakistan, poor country, Africa, so many poor countries, surely, you know, they have to be in the same situation as Ukraine, where they are self-sufficient uh, in agriculture. So yeah, we, 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 had, uh, uh, we had uh, members of the IAAA on our show some while back, and they were telling us about the model village uh, experiment or the projects that they're doing, which is basically making the villages self-reliant uh, for, by providing solar energy to, to water pumps, which in turn provide farming and, and growth of vegetables, etc., and feeds the wider area. That's that's the spirit of what uh, helping each other is, isn't it? And to make themselves reliant, and this is what we need to do uh, with poorer countries, particularly in Africa. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we have to develop agriculture and all that. But the spirit of IAAAE is totally different. You know, we have, you have volunteers going from here mm. at nil pay, and sometimes they uh, pay for their own uh, fare and uh, pocket, contribute yeah. a lot to IAAAE as well. Yeah. Whereas if you have the, the chief executive of uh, some of these uh, charities, which are based in the, U, in the UK, you mm. know, they have mouth-watering uh, Salaries, <laughs> yes. which teachers, nurses, and uh, and uh, railway workers would, uh, uh, you know, would would like to have, mm. and so they or have de- a lot of deserve to have so, yeah. so you know, the model which you are talking about, IAAA, is quite unique, and uh, you know, we we only have a few resources, as uh, uh, the Caliph of Ahmadiyyat Islam keeps saying, mm. uh, and yet this is the example how we can go forward. Uh, so let's hope. Uh, the world is in a better place uh, sooner rather than later. I'm into that. With that, thank you very much, Azza, for joining us and giving us an insight into how we can help the world at large and and uh, and what politics, uh, how how efficient the politic world needs a reformation in that regard. So, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Walid Sahib. Thank you. Thank you, Salakum. Right, Walid. Uh, yes, sir. Continuing our serialization of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. 
You'll be laying down the key historical incidences around his life. In the last program, we were discussing the visit of the delegation from Taif to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, after he returned from Tabuk. Uh, they wanted to accept Islam, but sought conditions hmm. on their acceptance. Remind us what the, what were these conditions, and, and why were they requiring these conditions? Well, uh, why is is a deeper question, but mm. uh, as far as the conditions are concerned, these yeah. people from Taif, I mean, Taif was a, a center of idolatry, so steeped in idol worship. So they wanted, uh, the first condition they, they wanted to be accepted is to retain their idols. Mm. So yes, they wanted to accept Islam, but they retained their idols. And the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, wasn't going to accept that. He said, no, that's uh, nothing doing. I mean, that, the idols have to go. And then they could not break the, you know, they couldn't bring themselves to break their idols. Mm. You know, they didn't want to do that. So the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, okay, then I'll, I'll send a couple of people with you. Uh, Abu Sufyan and Mughira were the, the peoples that are cited, and the individuals that are cited in history to accomplish this task. So uh, that is how their, um, their idols were broken. And again, it shows that in their heart of hearts, um, they were uh, really wanting to retain their idol worship. And mm. I, I, I say this from the uh, from what they ex- expressed. So it's not a case of saying that I can look into their hearts. I have to be careful here. Mm, mm. But uh, it is said that when these, this demolition was taking place, there was a lot of wailing and crying and sorrow that was expressed. Right. So that indicates that mm. there was a, there was certainly a wanting, a longing to retain. Yeah. Where, where were these idols kept? So they were in uh, in the center of, of Taif. One of the big idols that right. they had was Lat. Uh, okay. uh, so uh, again, a female idol, but um, a very important idol. Mm. So it was it was basically demolished. Uh, so that was one aspect. And the other uh, thing that they were asking uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to give way on yeah. was the five daily prayers. They didn't want to you know, <laughs> pray five times a day. Too much for them. So uh, the Holy Prophet said, without Salat, there's no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, except this, you see, even if it is dis- be disgraceful and humiliating, I mean, mm-hmm. even if it, you feel that it is something that you shouldn't be doing because of uh, your past, mm-hmm. You know, you need to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he also said, that, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that there's no religion without Salat. Right. So, uh, fundamentally, I mean, to look at it deeply, um, there's no there's no religion without worship of mm, God. Mm. If you recognize God, you need to worship him. So, uh, that's basically what he was saying. Uh, so, if I can yeah. just add, there's been much to do about this, uh, mm. about the breaking of statues and mm. idols. Uh, the Taliban, when they took over, they, they went and broke a lot of idols in a lot of places of worship, etc. But here, it's a case of a community who wants to come to Islam, which is the belief in one God. They were the ones being asked to get rid of the statues, not yeah. because uh, they uh, those others who didn't want to join Islam were allowed to do so. Yes. Correct? Yes. But because it's, it's a bit like if you want a gambler to come off gambling, you don't say to him, okay, but we'll let you 
spend mm. so much every yeah. week on it. You know, yeah. that type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's no, 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 that's very true. So mm. the, these people are saying that we want to accept Islam, yes. right? Uh, but we want to do it on our terms. Right. We want to have a cake and eat it. Yes, yeah, that's yes. what they're that's saying. So it's quite, you know. yeah. Mm. So it's quite different. You're quite right. Okay. Uh, and so that's the second thing. Uh, no salat. And the third thing is, it made me chuckle. I mean, I, I laughed at, out loud. My wife was wondering what happened to me mm. uh, when I read this. They said that I mean, uh, that you uh, can we also be allowed to you know occasionally have wine and maybe have a bit of uh, indulging in adultery as well. Some you know once in a while. Once in a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, Here or there. So, again, uh, the Holy Prophet said, no, nothing doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these kind of things are prohibited in Islam. And, uh, you know, this is not something that uh, you should be engaged in. It's uh, something that you should totally, totally avoid. Not even a bit is allowed. Okay. Uh, what about the kind of training that was given to Hazrat Usman, for example, for his work? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So one, you see, this delegation consisted of about a dozen people, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And one of them was Usman, uh, who was quite keen on learning uh, sincerely about what Islam was about. And uh, uh, he, uh, you know, the what was given to him, what was advised to him, carries a lesson for us as well to this day. Mm. Um, the general tuition that was given to him involved revolved around the study of the Quran. The Holy Prophet him, himself personally imparted that to him. And when he was not available, then it was uh, uh, Abu Bakr. Mm-hmm. So he learned uh, uh, the Holy Quran and the teachings from the best. It's from the best. And the other bit that I think is very relevant to us as well, he said, uh, the Holy Prophet said to uh, to Osman that observe brevity in Salat. So when you're leading prayers, do not make them too long. Have in mind the weakest of worshippers, for there are the aged, the children, the weak and the needy. And he also said, you know, appoint a, a, a muezzin, but, you know, this has to be on a voluntary task. Um, and he recommended that, uh, you know, when you are leading the prayers, don't go into long surahs, mm. I mean, sh- use short ones. Um, and he said that, of course, when you are praying on your own, then make those uh, prayers as long as you want. Right. But when you are leading the prayers, be mindful of others. Mm. Right? Mm. Be and it's very good advice. It shows, you know, the sensitivity of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, the capacity to understand the condition of others and to mold the practice of religion, or certainly the leadership accordingly. And uh, the one hadith springs is very relevant in this, and it is that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that uh, facilitate things to people, do not make it hard for them. Right. Uh, give them good tidings and do not make them run, run away from Islam. Mm. And there's another hadith as well, which I wasn't able to note down, which is about um, making religion easy for people. Right. Don't make it difficult for them. Yes. So it's very, very good advice, and it is something that you know we could all learn from. And, and that's the sort of Islam that attracted a lot mm. of people, and we're in a phase of uh, a peaceful phase now. The wars, major major wars, have, are over. Mm. Did it attract other people to come to Islam? Were other tribes attracted, like the the mm. tribe here was attracted to Islam? With the rise of Islam, right, inevitably, mm. uh, uh, people uh, looked up uh, and their ears were pricked, so to speak. 
and they saw the uh, the its domination mm. this and they wanted uh, therefore to uh, engage with with muslims and to come to some uh, kind of uh, agreement with them and this happened uh, after the battle of azab now azab is 5 years after migration mm-hmm. right after that uh, things began to change and people uh, wanted to come and to meet the holy prophet peace be upon him uh, why because azab was the last ditch forgive the pun but forgive the <laughs> yes because yes. of the battle of the ditch um, it was the last big battle to annihilate the Holy Prophet and his mm. message. Yeah. There was a, a lot of um, tribes that have got together in order to achieve that task. Because conspired, yeah. yeah. And when that failed, then there was a realization that Islam was there to say the Holy Prophet was not going to go anywhere. Mm. So might as well make uh, amend fences, you know, make, uh, negotiate uh, some kind of settlement with them. Some chose to accept, some chose to just have an agreement with him. So there were a lot of, the, I mean, when you look into the history books, the, especially the old historical records, they uh, amassed some 70 delegations. Oh, right. Accounts of 70 delegations that came to the Holy Prophet. Representing Peter. different tribes. Different, yeah, yeah, different tribes. Yeah. People were coming to him. Mm. Now, I don't know whether you, whether you remember our earlier uh, broadcasts. You know, we were talking about the case of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, before migration. Mm when he was going from tent to tent, when uh, people had arrived for the Hajj. Correct. From tent to tent, you know, pl- almost, you know, almost imploring greedy. them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, know, you know, give me some support. I mm. mean, why mm. don't you, you know, take me in, uh, give me some support, listen to my message. Mm. And we also learned about this account from Jabir bin Abdullah. He's a companion of the Correct. Prophet, peace be upon him. He said that I personally saw this, that he came, uh, to our tent, you know, uh, imploring us to to accept Islam, and immediately after that, there was a an age uh, uh, a more elderly man who followed him with red, uh, he had a red complexion, mm. uh, warning us not to ha- not to take any notice of this man that right. has just proceeded. Right. So you know, he was hounded uh, effectively. This was his state, and that that man who followed him was his uncle uh, Abu Lahab. Okay. okay, so he was a big opponent of mm, the Holy Prophet. Right. Peace There's a night so, about him. Well, yeah, absolutely, a yeah. yeah, whole story about him. Yes, absolutely, you're right. So this was his state only a few years. And uh, now things had completely changed. He wasn't going to them. They were coming to him. And mm. they were traveling miles to get to him. So um, you find that uh, uh, a lot of people are, are um, uh, coming to him. And the, the what was happening with Taif with the people of Thai, was just an example. Mm, mm. Um, so, th- yes, there were others, and uh, yes, and some of them did, uh, you know, chance their arm and ask for concessions. Did, well. did, did, were they like the Thai people of Thai and asking for lots of concessions? Or well, what? Uh, there is this story, uh, y- yes, uh, uh, there is this story uh, that is quite interesting about one of the, we're not going to go through all the no, 70 delegations, no. but uh, one of these uh, was uh, from uh, the tribe called Abdul Qais. And uh, uh, one of the leaders, um, in fact, uh, had met the Holy Prophet when he was passing by on a trading mission. And he was deeply impressed, accepted Islam. And a few years later, uh, the Holy Prophet, it is said, had a dream or some intimation from Allah 
uh, that made him announce uh, in the mosque that there was going to be a delegation from the east mm-hmm. who would come to meet him the next day. Uh, the words are, you will receive tomorrow the best Arab delegation coming from the eastern side. So some of the companions were very impressed by, by this statement of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And one of them, as a woman no less, uh, says that he became very restless that night. You know, right. he could not sleep. You know, who are these people mm. that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has announced are the best? So unable to contain himself in the morning, he says, very early, he got onto his camel and, uh, you know, went towards the east in the direction that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, mm. was telling him, uh, was mentioning in uh, in his announcement, in seeking these people, you know, where are these people? And uh, he said, uh, after looking around for a while, he could not spot anyone and was turning back. And just at that moment, he was able to catch uh, the sight of a camel or two. Mm-hmm. And then when he approached them, it was a delegation from this tribe from Abdul Qais. Right. And <clears throat> again, I mean, his, uh, uh, um, uh, as far as he was concerned, his mission at that time was just to give them the good news that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has declared you to be the best mm. uh, from the East. And he said that this is what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has been predicting. And as soon as he delivered that message, he uh, rushed back and told the Holy Prophet and his companions, and this is, uh, they they are are coming, that uh, what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said the morning or the day before was correct. They are coming. And so they eagerly waited uh, for this uh, right. particular right. For, for this particular delegation, and when they arrived, uh, they were very respectful, very dignified. Yes, indeed, they had come to accept uh, Islam, and, and they asked, you know, many many questions. Mm. And there was a an, a, 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 a dialogue, a detailed dialogue. That as one would, wouldn't they? You would yeah. want to know some yeah. issues, you know, what you're doing. You and there's lots of we still ask questions now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Um, and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, this is also something interesting that uh, he took an interest in them. So he asked them about their uh, their farming, uh, their trades, um, the different kinds of dates that they were able to cultivate. Right. So, uh, uh, and so it shows that it wasn't a dialogue just on uh, what one would expect the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, wanting to convey to others, mm. it was also his interest wanting to learn about them and taking a genuine interest in them that was involved in this yes, dialogue yeah. and something that we should remember when we are conveying the message. So, we, absolutely. Yes. Take an interest in yeah. it. Uh, it's all seemed they were very cordial in the approach and, and mm. peace-loving, but were there any that had... Other alternative motives? Yeah. Uh, well, because you can't always have yeah. goody-goodies coming to oh. you. Well, th- in this case, they were all uh, with positive motives. Mm. And as far as your drink is concerned, yes, they did uh, you know, charge their arm as well, as far as wine was concerned. They said, uh, Messenger of God, our li- land is heavy and polluted. Uh, unless we have our you know, alcohol, a few drinks, we change color. <laughs> and our tummies bulge, bulge out. Mm. So, you know, uh, allow us, you know, some some drink. Some and then what they said is that they, they, you know, they cup their hands. And just allow us this much, mm. this much, you know, mm. a, a amount that will fill a hand. And uh, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, said that uh, uh, if I give you, you know, permission to, 
drink this much, this is uh, enough to fill the cup of your hand, mm. then you will, you know, actually be drinking much more and mm-hmm. he, you know, stretched out his arm. You'll be drinking this much. Mm. So I cannot uh, um, allow, you know, give you that, that relaxation. And then to drive the point home, he said something that that's interesting. He said that when you're allowed to drink, if I was given to mm. you the permission to drink, uh, you will then come to wield the sword on another's leg. Mm-hmm. And then, then they understood. And what would that mean? So the, what we, this was a telling remark, and it also shows, you know, the, the wisdom of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in trying to drive the point home. Um, because this incident had actually uh, uh, happened among that tribe. Uh, it is related that a group uh, was having a drinking party in one household when one of them, Haris was his name, recited a poem that was somewhat insulting, mm-hmm. uh, disparaging to one of the ladies of the household. Arabs were known for poetry parties yeah. and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and there was an indiscretion in this respect. Mm. He, in, he was less than, how can I say, um, less than uh, decent. Complimentary. Oh, less yeah. than complimentary mm-hmm. to one of the ladies of that household. And this incensed the host, you know, where the, the party was held, uh, being held. And he took Hazi's sword and struck uh, Haris's leg, mm. uh, injuring him. And Haris says, and this is uh, it's found in Bukhari, uh, the uh, collection of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him, says that he was a member of that delegation. He was there, mm. and he was very em- embarrassed when the Holy Prophet, you know, used that remark. Oh, right, okay. And uh, <laughs> he had a, a mark already on his leg, and he tried to conceal it under his clothes uh-huh. so that uh, it wasn't uh, evident to everyone that it was he that uh, suffered that uh, particular, uh, particular was at the end wrong end of that particular event. Mm. So. The point is that you know the Holy Prophet peace be upon him is not trying to strike the fear of hell in them or the fear of God in them mm. uh, by uh, expressing to them the importance of this prohibition. He is explaining to them the harm or the benefit of that prohibition in a way that they will understand. Yes, yeah. And that also, yeah. I think, is a lesson for us, that yes. when we're explaining things to them, rather than say that, you know, you will be blind in the hereafter yeah. of yeah. things yeah. of that nature, yeah. Yeah. you know, we should use sense yeah. and uh, use uh, uh, um, wisdom. A language, ways. when it's strongly used, is mm. relevant when the person is ready to receive mm. it in that format. Yeah. Before that, you need to do some yes. groundwork, yes. you know, and, and yeah. prepare them yeah. for it. Yeah. Uh, and what about these tribes? Were they all very aggressive to? Uh, I mean, all very cordial with him and coming to him, or were there some people within those tribes or some tribes which had other ulterior motives? Yes, they had sinister motives, and so yes, all not, not all the tribes were the same. One you'd expect to have sinister motives is is the tribe of Banu Asad. Uh, now, this was a tribe uh, that brought 10 uh, uh, delegates to mm. the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, and uh, they, I, it's wrong to say that they had sinister motives, but um, they were a bit arrogant, and they boasted that they had uh, come to Islam of their own volition, they had traveled day and night, suffered the cold, you know, and, and what have you, as if they were doing some favor to the Holy Prophet by accepting Islam. And this attitude, when we read the Holy Quran, is condemned. Some commentators point us to verse 18 of Surah Al-Hujurat, 
uh, that disapproves of this kind of uh, attitude. They, it says they presume to regard it as a favor to you that they have embraced Islam. Say, deem not your embracing Islam as a favor to me. On the contrary, Allah has bestowed a favor upon you hmm. in that he has guided you to the truth, true faith if you are truthful. Uh, so that's one tribe. There was another tribe with was not so much arrogant, but they had evil intentions. And this is the Banu uh, Amir or Banu Amir mm. uh, ibn uh, Uh This tribe had been involved in the massacre of the 70 companions. Now, this is yeah. a famous incident that took place during the early history of Islam and uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, sent 70 teachers to teach Islam and they were massacred and this tribe was involved and their uh, leader was Amir ibn Tufel. Uh, and he was one of those arrogant chiefs. Now, he had uh, communicated to the Holy Prophet peace before him, either directly or through uh, through letters or through uh, messengers, mm -hmm. that he wanted to negotiate uh, a treaty with the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. And he gave him uh, three options. One option was that um, they should divide the territory of Islam between themselves. Right. So he should, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, should you know, take the cities, mm -hmm. but leave the less of the, the Bedouin territory, leave that to, to him. So that's a division that he proposed. He said, if that's not acceptable to you, then okay, I will accept Islam, but then you have to appoint me as a successor. So no then uh, I will uh, then lead mm. the uh, Islamic movement, yep, yep. the uh, community of Islam mm. after, after you go. And the third option, he said, that if you don't accept this, then you know I will raise a thousand she camels, a thousand he camels, and we will ride against you. So these are the three options right. he gave. And of course, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was not going to accept either of them, no. uh, either of his conditions, uh, the first two conditions at least. And so he wasn't going to give way. He was, I mean, this uh, territory was not for negotiation. It's not. Uh, uh, um, uh, a temporal right. uh, um, leadership that he had. He was also uh, a spiritual leader, first mm -hmm. and foremost. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there was no negotiation on, on that issue. So uh, things were laid at rest. Now, he also came uh, with a delegation of a few people to meet the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Holy Prophet actually met him. Mm -hmm. He had evil intentions, and we will learn about those evil intentions in the next yes, edition. So you, <laughs> do, you, do, yeah, you do leave us on tender hooks, <laughs> don't you? Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and the Holy Prophet, because we know from Surah Hudaybiyah, was uh, very open to concessions, wasn't he? Yeah. And, uh, but if they came with conditions which were too far, too far-fetched, then he would stand his ground. No, on principle, he would not budge. No. Okay, in principle, no. but when it came to forgiveness and uh, for latitude, mm. then he would, you know, right. of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's a lesson for us as well. Indeed. Do not compromise on principles, but uh, on details, certainly you can. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and maybe our politicians of today yes. need to learn this art yeah. of... Uh, 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 skill of negotiating yeah, rather yeah. than entrenching themselves. Yes. Uh, the principles are there, but uh, leniency yeah. of, uh, of listening to others yeah. should always be open. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed.
Just been called for Donald The decision taken to join the common market has been reversed. The government should call a general election. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam, the Weekend World Show with us and Emily, to our listeners. We are now on to our next segment of the show, which is Behind the Headlines. We'll start with the verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 4, verse 59. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّوا الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ أَن تَحْكُمُوا بِالْعَدْلِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ نِعِمَّا يَعِظُكُمْ بِهِ Verily Allah commands you to make over the trust to those entitled to them and that when you judge between men you judge with justice and surely excellent is that which Allah admonishes you Allah is all hearing, all seeing. Read the Boris, uh, the CNN business news says that uh, Boris Johnson leaves world's fifth biggest economy in crisis. Uh, the London uh, office of CNN Business says that Boris Johnson was ultimately forced to resign as UK Prime Minister Thursday as dozens of members of his party quit the government after one ethics scandal too many. But his popularity outside Parliament has also been badly dented by surging inflation and stagnation in the British economy, a cost-of-living crisis that threatens to impoverish millions more people this winter, and the risk of a damaging trade war with the European Union. Yes, UK stocks rose in response to reports that Johnson was preparing to stand down, recovering slightly from the two-year lows hit earlier this week. But uh, Walid Kudami warns, uh, the, the chief market analyst of broker XTB, he warns, Make no mistake, however, that the pound remains severe, severely weak due to the dire state of the UK economy, which is underperforming its peers and likely to enter into a recession. Whoever emerges from the rubble of his administration as new leader of the Conservative Party in the country, they face a series of extraordinary economic and financial challenges. Yes, uh, let's listen to a few of the situation of British politics, you could say. Um, which, which is, uh, you know, what, what is happening of our politics? Is this the politics that we want? And I've been a member of the Labour Party for a long, long time. You have absolutely said you had ten pledges, you were going to carry on the Corbyn legacy. And ever since, you've done nothing but distance yourself from the ideas which tens of thousands of people joined the Labour Party to support and you all you've done is feed into the Tory ideology of not supporting strikes, of carrying on with the privatisation of our health service. You're doing everything yeah, to feed into a Tory victory. We may as well have a Tory if we have a person like you who lies to the party. It's a dishonesty. Thank you very much. So this is an attack on Keir Starmer and this is what Boris Johnson had to face. Well, it, what is certainly true, let me tell you what, what is true. Uh, I, I was aware back in 2019, I was made aware of a specific allegation against uh, uh, 
Chris Pincher that was that was resolved. But it's and, taken you to he, till today he, to say that, hasn't and it? And he, your spokesman well, on Friday... The first time, with great respect, that I've had the chance to Your spokesman to on Friday said you were not aware of a specific allegation. On Sunday, a cabinet minister I've, sent out to interview. I've been informed this morning, he, you, didn't know about a specific allegation. But you did, you're saying that now. Yesterday, another minister, he'd been given a categoric assurance you weren't aware of a specific allegation. Day after day after day, people speaking on your behalf... We're talking I think, rubbish. I, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't, I'm, I was, I'm afraid, focusing on, on other things at, at the time. And then when we watch Prime Minister's Question Time, you hear things like this on uh, Parliament. Give me the word in. Order! Order! I say to the honourable gentleman, I will not tolerate such behaviour. If you want to go out, go out now. But if you stand again, I'll order you out. Make your mind up. And then shut up and get out. So, this is the state of our politics. Is this what we want? Is this how politics in Britain should be should be dealing with? Joining us this morning from Bradford is Dr. Iqbal, who takes a keen interest in politics and religion and, and particularly history. Retired from the pharmaceutical industry, he is currently the presenter-producer of Living History Programme on Voice of Islam and a guest on our show on many occasions. Uh, good morning. Salaam alaikum, Dr. Iqbal. Wa alaikum salam and good morning to you, Invalid. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Always a pleasure to have you, uh, Dr. Iqbal. Dr. Iqbal, that was just a snippet of things that we see in our politics today. Uh, all the signs are we are heading, and 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 in terms of uh, uh, our political, uh, sorry, economical situation, uh, we were talk- talking with Azhar. We seem to be heading towards a severe crisis as well. Um, I just want you to listen to one more clip uh, from a Marina Pukis, who is a commentator on politics uh, and economy. This is what she had to say. They're getting ready for strike action. The teachers are going to be looking at strike action later on in this year. We we'll see in the NHS people getting ready for that. And I think that's right. Why should you put up with falling living standards? Oh, sorry, I think we've, uh, we've misplaced our clip. Never mind. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, now, it, it appears that, the work, uh, that, the, that we're heading for a severe economical crisis in Britain. Uh, working class people are going to be the worst hit. People in full employment, like the NHS nurses, are having to recourse to food banks. And as the CNN reading uh, we just read out puts it, that we are the fifth largest economy in the world, and we are in a crisis. Uh, who's to blame? Ah, it's it's really woeful, isn't it? Um, you know, you had such a contrast, such a beautiful verse read out from the Holy Quran in terms of uh, uh, how nations are built and mm. how those in authority are meant to serve us and develop our, our nation. For every citizen, and here we are with the clips you played. You know, the House of Commons is a joke sometimes when you hear those rowdy guys and uh, ladies, you know, sh- shouting all sorts of things. No, Britain, and and uh, and and and, and, and the MP is not trustworthy. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you again, you play the even in terms of the opposition. Never mind the government. You know, you think that. Governments often fail to deliver because, you know, it's a challenging world out there. But the opposition at least has some free thinking time to prepare policies and, uh, you know, sort of think for the future. And they're falling apart as well, really, being very opportunistic rather than presenting any specific plans. So it is a tragedy, I think, uh, for the nation overall, but Mm. especially for those who are poor. 
And, uh, you know, as you know, I'm from the north of England and the inequality in the north and south is massive. So I think um, many of us in the north of England are going to be impacted even more so than the whole, you know, the, the nation, especially those folks in the south. Hmm. I mean, as I was pointing out, uh, the war with Ukraine isn't helping us. This is, in fact, the sanctions we imposed on uh, Russia, uh, which led to the war as well, um, are going to have more severe impact on us as a nation as well. And the West, through its illegal wars, has created many disasters in its wake and trying to impose Western democracies failing miserably. You only have to look at what happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, to name a few. Uh, you know, that's the state of world politics, isn't it? Uh, oh, you're absolutely right, uh, Hassan. I mean, I, we've we've talked uh, in the past of some of the failings of the last sort of 20, 30 years or so, broadly speaking, by Western powers. Um, and, you know, this country has been in the forefront of international developments. And uh, sadly, I would say since... Um, you know, decolonization and independence of uh, third world countries uh, in terms of stirring the troubles uh, outside, which is a shame. And yet it's had a great history as well. You know, this nation has had much to offer to the world in terms of the way it treats its citizens, the way it provides some of the services and some of the great institutions that we have. But it just seems to me that Britain's shooting itself in the foot every time. You know, leaving aside the disaster that they caused for the country with the U.S. in the Middle Eastern war, mm. you look at Brexit. I mean, all those promises that were made, virtually nothing has been delivered. And I think, in my personal view, it's been an absolute disaster. Now, I was a Remainer because I think, you know, it's important to be part of a bigger European economy and culture, etc. And it's because there's a lot of shared history as well. But that's been an absolute uh, nonsense. Then you had the broad COVID uh, impact on everybody globally, and every nation has had to deal with it in different way. And then on top of that, now, as you mentioned, you've got this Ukraine war, which we are in the forefront of, you know, um, so really prolonging in many ways. And the reality is it's, it's a lost cause now. Mm. Um, I think the Russian side has achieved its objectives and we need to get our act together as far as this country goes and get on with the building our own infrastructure and building our services rather than wanting to spend more and more on foreign wars. Does the media, is the media complicit in it as well? Because uh, when, when it, when we were attacking Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, etc., the the media was, you know, how evil are the other people? And as soon as uh, uh, Russia does the same, suddenly uh, we are supporting Ukraine, and rightly so. And and our issue is that we should have always been supporting those who have been oppressed and not those who are creating the disorder. Uh, so is the media sometimes, because if you look at the media, all you hear about is the... Uh, I think it's more war-hungry than even the politicians, if you ask me, personally. Uh, I I, I think the media in the last 20, 30 years has done a great disservice to this country and broadly the Western world. And, you know, you can see the price citizens are paying and countries are paying. Um, Of course, in the, the Iraq war was part of a wider plan, you know, based on trying to impose an American century and the British wanted to be part of that. And of course, that was based on resources and oil and whatever. Yeah. But that failed miserably. And we just seems to be going from one problem to another because, 
in reality, you see, after Iraq, Syria was an, uh, uh, an ongoing, unfinished business from the Iraq war. And then Ukraine is an unfinished business from Syria because, because Russia uh, intervened in Syria, who was an ally of the Russians, then Ukraine is a follow-on. So you wonder what follows on from that because now you've got the drums of war beating uh, with China in uh, Taiwan. So... These are all linked together, and it's about a degree of honesty and about planning for your nation and what's beneficial for you or not. And I just think Britain is, you know, as much as I love this country, and it's a fantastic country to live in, in terms of foreign policy, our, our leaders are just, and the media, you're absolutely right, and mm. the media are also leading us up the wrong path. Uh, the world has changed massively. You know, China and Russia are major countries. They're not like small countries like Afghanistan or, or Iraq or whatever. You can batter at your own free choosing. Mm. These are big nations that can defend themselves, and they have allies that they want to support as well. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm very much anti-war, wherever it is, but sometimes you've got to pick your wars. Um, you know, imperialists and colonialists always want to have more and more wars, but that's just stupidity in my mind. Mm. Dr. Iqbal, Salakum, and tell me, I mean, you mentioned uh, the wars that uh, are uh, we going through. Uh, what's the solution? I think, in all honesty, if somebody had the guts uh, at the top, at the United Nations, they should have banged heads together. And the problem is you can't, because usually the Secretary General is elected from a smaller nation, and the big power players decide which way policy goes. And well, it's been clear, and you'll see this in the series of programs I've recently done in living history, and how nations have built up, how nations have sort of built up and then fallen down, empires have built up and fallen down, coming up to the current crisis. And the problem is the powerful always dictate, and the U.S. and the broader Western world is always dictated to the United Nations of where to fight, where not to fight, where to invade. And now you've got a different picture with two major nations rising up with the Russians and uh, the Chinese as well. So the solution is that you, ha you are heading towards a multipolar world. You can't have one region of the world, i.e. the West, dominating others or one major superpower like the United dominating all others. It just can't go on forever. So you need a multipolar world where everybody respects international law mm. and works together for the betterment of their nations, of course, because every nation has their own interests, but also for the wider betterment of humanity overall and less wars and more economic uh, um, you know, prosperity for our nations. You, you, Dr. Iqbal, you, you referred to the chronic verse that we played at the beginning where Allah Almighty says that you judge between people, you judge with justice. Is that justice absent in world politics at the moment? Uh, I think it and, is. And also, if you look at our Muslim uh, nations, are they also lacking the guidance that is given in the Quran? Very much so, and I think you've you know hit the nail on the head. Basically, look after the First World War, you know humanity sometimes sadly right learns after Allah has either punished it directly or allowed itself to get punished because mm. that's what Allah does. He says, okay, learn from your own mistakes. So after the First World War, we said for a while, never again, you know, peace. And then look what happened with the Second World War. Then we set up the United Nations and said never again. And look where we're heading now. But after the Second World War, I think for a couple of 
at least a decade or two, actually, there were a lot of good thinkers and people saying, you know, we must build institutions that are based on justice and fair play, whatever. But that got hijacked very quickly. And that's the problem. And you're absolutely right. The, the, the Quran says, unless you have that absolute justice, you can't establish peace because there's always going to be somebody who's going to be worse off. Mm. And eventually they're going to say, this is not a fair world and we're going to fight against it. Coming to the politics at home now, we've just got rid of a prime minister. We, we heard a clip as to why he was eventually pushed uh, for his shady goings on and refusing to budge and, and not going and then eventually getting kicked out. The economy is in a severe crisis. Current, uh, currently, we have a leadership battle taking in to replace him. Is there a better future ahead to what you've been seeing of the two candidates that are remaining? Uh, what, how do you see uh, the politics of Britain? Is it going to improve? I, as you know, I'm not a political party affiliated person. So my views are broadly whoever does the best for our nation. To me, that's the most important thing. And out of the two candidates, I must admit, um, uh, I wasn't, I didn't particularly like Rishi Sunak that much, but he grew on me. But the problem is now with the last two remaining, I think the momentum is behind Liz Truss, and that frightens me, honestly. Mm. I, I really think she worries me a lot. I don't think she's got the capability. At the end of it, look, you know, the Conservative Party will decide who our Prime Minister will be, and we hope for the best for our nation and our Prime Minister. But even, the, I don't know if you know, but she's from the north of England, so her father is a senior lecturer at Leeds University. And there's been an article about how the father has really blasted her for being so nasty and negative, oh, etc. Right. And I don't think she's very capable. I don't want to be rude and nasty, but that's true. Look what she did when she went to meet Lavrov with the Russians, mm. you know, in Ukraine before the war started. She couldn't even figure out where the different parts of the borders were. And, mm. <laughs> you know, Lavrov took the mickey out of her. I think it was, she was one of the worst foreign secretaries we've ever had. And yet, it's likely that she's going to be pushed into uh, um, being the Prime Minister. And now with the Tugendhat backing her up fully, I suspect that there's going to be an anti-Russian, anti-Chinese uh, policy overall, and everything else will be secondary. I know she talks about education, but I don't believe it. I think that the people are ganging up now to, with the Americans, and we're going to have more war and more conflicts and uh, a deflection of our national priorities. Mm. I think she's already been beating the war drums with Russia, uh, with China. Yeah, but uh, uh, you've said quite quite a lot about Liz Truss. I mean, I, I'm not a fan personally, but I mean, her supporters would say that she gets you know things done uh, when she was you know secretary in charge trade, of, uh, of trade of trade. She got trade deals done when she became foreign secretary. Then she made sure that uh, Nazanin uh, Radcliffe was freed. Uh, she was able to achieve it when other foreign secretaries before her and we did not achieve it. So she gets things done. Don't you think that's something that you know in her favour and should uh, should uh, uh, give us some confidence for what she can do as a prime minister? <laughs> Look, on a smaller scale, she did something when she was also you know part of the sort of justice uh, um, uh, the 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 sort of legal. Uh, secretary, I can't remember the title they give them, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but judiciary when she was in charge of that. So she did some positive things there. 
But uh, in, as a foreign secretary, she was totally out for that. I don't think she has got really a clue about economics, uh, if you ask me from her record. Uh, and she might have certain other conservative values, because clearly she switched over from the Liberal Democrat uh, mm. Party to the Conservatives. So she's probably changed politically um, quite, quite a bit. But my personal view is that she is somebody who is much more pliable and uh, will be manipulated by the powers that be, which are the large numbers of backers that she's got, as well as the media and others that will have their set agenda. One of the difficulties in my, I believe, personally, Boris was taken out, that he thought he was too big and too powerful and nobody could touch him. But what he didn't realize is that those who want to shape policy and power and whatever, they can spit you out just as quickly as they build you up. Mm. Um, whereas I think Liz Truss will do what is needed to be done by those who want a particular uh, policy uh, played out. And uh, I really feel for that. And especially on for foreign affairs, she's very hawkish. And that really, really worries me. Mm. You know, I think this country is sticking its neck out, both in terms of tackling Russia and in tackling China. Now, why do we need to do that if the Americans want to do that? Like they're, they are a superpower. They're a big nation. We've got enough things to sort out in our own nation, and let's focus on those. But you watch. It's not, not going to happen. Yeah, so many will say that Britain is America's biggest f footprint in, in Europe, and that's why Britain is supported by America, and hence Britain will support yeah. them. Uh, much has been said about the blue-on-blue -blue attacks and the... Uh, uh, it, it's not doing the Tory party any good, it appears. Let's listen to a little short clip of some of the things that, that, that have been said. £40 billion more borrowing. That is the, company, the country's credit card. It's our children and grandchildren. Everyone here is that kids. Is, that so is we're going to have true. to pick up the tab for that. Rishi, that is not true. there's nothing conservative about doing Under that. my plans, we would start paying down the debt in three years' time. You know what? Liz, your plans, your own economic advisor has said that that would lead to mortgage rates, interest rates going up to 7%. I don't believe this negative, declinist language It's your own economic hearing. advisor, Liz. It's we, not mine. We, it's your own advisor. I have lots of economists that are backing my plans. Uh, just a short clip. Uh, much was said about Sunak interrupting a lot uh, while mm -hmm. Tress was speaking. Uh, what are your views on Sunak? Uh, I think Walid was alluding I, to that. Uh, and do you think, uh, I mean, of the two, who do you fear the most? I think economically, Rishi Sunak is way above this trust. And I think most intellectuals and top economists and other people would back what he's thinking. And I think he's genuine about, you know, getting the nation out of the debt trap and the mess that we're in. Now, you can promise tax cuts and your supporters all sorts of things. But that's, you know, let's be honest, right? Majority of the Conservative supporters will be reasonably well-to-do. By the grace of God, I'm reasonably well-to-do as well. It probably won't harm me. Whatever they do, it doesn't bother me. But for the average person, of course, it's going to have a big impact. And so if you're just going to have tax cuts and all these freebies thrown at them um, whilst the nation just decays, it's a real problem. Whereas I think Rishi genuinely, uh, and he, he didn't sort of, you know, draw back from it that, no, he's not going to cut taxes straight away because the nation needs uh, that, that support and backup. So I actually, but I, I, I really don't think, that, I think the MPs liked him. <laughs> Hmm. But the Tory membership. Were why do you think? Why they'll do, want the freebies. They'll want the free, you know, the tax cuts. 
Dr. Akbar, why do you think that is, that the, uh, the Tory membership is not as, uh, you know, uh, impressed with uh, Rishi Sunak as the Tory MPs are, or you are? Is, it, is there a race issue, do you think? Look, I, I, I think in all honesty, right, this country has moved a long, long way in terms of, you know, supporting diversity and equality, and it's something to be very proud of, right? Just look at the number of ethnic minority candidates that were standing, for God's sake, and not just in politics, but in the Tory party, you know, the, mm. the party that was the right of right. So I, I think there's a lot to be proud of. The Rishi himself has said that he's not too worried about the racial issue, but, you know, Honestly, there will be a racial element across the country because we, are, we still need to improve things. But compared to other countries and their racism and prejudices, I think this country is great. I think the issue is that, look, um, Liz will say whatever people want to hear. The, the Tory party, the media, anybody else, right? She will just say what needs to be said to get to power or whatever it needs to be. And the other bit is that in the Tory party, I know the politicians took down uh, Boris Johnson, but across the Tory um, party and across the nation, there were a lot of people who actually supported Boris or liked Boris. Mm. And I think he's going, he's going to be punished because Javid, uh, Sajid Javid and him took the first steps to bring him down. Mm. So I, I think there's a mixture of that. But I, you know, I don't want to play the race card because I do think this country is still pretty great. Uh, in, it is often said that we deserve the leaders we elect, but often we are led by the media, and we intimated on that earlier. And it is they who really choose our leaders through false and biased reporting. Is the media to blame of the public at, or, or the public at large for electing these politicians? I think, Hassan, honestly, you, you've done justice on your program because you hit the nail on the head, and it is the media. Look at look at our opposition party, right, especially with Labour. Here's Tama. Uh, I mean, when Jerry Corbyn was taken down for a variety of reasons, right, everybody said, look, let's move on and get a leader and, you know, get Labour back on. But he's become such an opportunist at every level, ditching every promise he makes, whatever. I find it, and that's because he wants to play to the media, in particular Murdoch and the, the powers and Tony Blair and his backers, etc. So, you know, we haven't got principled opposition. Uh, even in terms of, you know, Brexit, he can't decide what to say. I, I, in the eyes of many independent people, it has been a failure. And even those who were staunch Brexiters are saying that things haven't been delivered the way they should have been. Well, that's because they weren't going to be, because a lot of false lies were spread out, etc. And he can't make his mind up on hardly anything apart from punishing anybody. It was, it was really, you know, um, standing up for those uh, um, who, who are battered and uh, really from the working classes, which is such a shame. I don't believe in giving freebies to, you know, working classes or anybody because mm. people should, as we have done as Asians, you know, the Asian community has done pretty well and we've all worked hard uh, because of the opportunities this country has given. So sometimes Labour just wants to throw money at problems. I don't agree with that. But um, there doesn't seem to be any policy or uh, principled policies. Mm. What are your hopes for the future for British politics? Oh, honestly, I think it's pretty grim at the moment. I, uh, I, 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 I wish that once this Ukraine thing is over, that we get our senses back and say, look, let's 
there's a multipolar world. There's enough for everybody. We should cooperate to develop our infrastructures, our institutions, get our children, their education to the highest levels, get health care for our people, etc., work together. Um, and that should be our focus, not picking the next fight or the next sort of divisive war for, to split up uh, nations and cultures, etc. And uh, I hope Britain would take a lead in that. I mean, we've had a good two, three hundred years, for God's sake, of colonial yep. rule and ruling the world. Let's just manage our own country and make it one of the best in the innovative countries but I can't see that happening sadly yes and mm. uh, not at the moment one of the things we were talking earlier uh, with Azar as well is the disparity between the rich and the poor and you pointed out that you're from the north has the leveling up policy of the Tory government helped the north has it helped the people or is that more verbal diarrhea than... Honestly, uh, hot... <laughs> absolutely. Yes, you picked the right word better than mine. We, you know, we were promised all this levelling up, right? All talk hot air. We were promised rail connection and HS2 and whatever, right? Uh, Leeds, of course, the, you know, in the north of England, you know Leeds is a major centre, right? Of course it tends to do well. But what about the rest of the big towns like Bradford others? Nothing, you know, the, the, the rail lines were cut down. Oh, sorry, we haven't got enough money to... It's a lot. Of and then, the, you know, the Northern Powerhouse concept and all that. That's been whittled down so much. Whatever people say about Cameron and Osborne, I think they were genuine about the Northern Powerhouse and what they wanted to do. Uh, and I think they, they would have managed it better. But unfortunately, you know, things went wrong. And uh, no, it's all hot air at the moment. Really? No, no. Um, uh, um, I was just uh, thinking, I mean... Um, do you think that um, uh, our policy, some of the reasons for our um, our problems, is said to be the way that we've handled uh, Ukraine? Do you think that uh, we should have done things differently, especially when it comes to sanctions? Do you th- I mean, how else are we going to register our disapproval of what has happened to that country uh, without imposing uh, uh, sanctions, other than? Uh, actually fighting ourselves? I think, Lizzie, we we have to be, look, first, here we are, we're in July, end of July, right? And we have to be honest to say, okay, what have we achieved? We have knackered the European economy. I mean, they're basically on their knees now, right? And the Americans are coping a lot better than we are, without a doubt. And the Russian economy is, look at the ruble, you look at their economy, you look at their exports of oil, you look at oil price, you look at, um, you know, uh, how they are being supported by so much of the South. And when I say South, I mean Latin America, Africa, Asian countries, whatever, they're all with them. So when we talk about the international communities against Russia and what Russia did, etc., that's a farce. It's nonsensical because they refuse to have, you know, video links with uh, Zelensky, etc., you know, having photographs on Vogue magazine and giving lectures and stuff. So that was all a managed nonsense. The reality is that Ukraine was the last straw and Russia had made it absolutely clear that please do not expand NATO to, uh, you know, to, towards those borders because um, Europe had betrayed the promises given to Russia and everybody knows that. That's well documented, even though the media won't. So there was no need for that war. It didn't need to take place. And now the best parts of Ukraine are in Russian hands and they're not going to go back. Hmm. And Germany is going to be crippled. All of Europe is going to be crippled. And Britain will also suffer the consequences because of that. So I don't think we will. <laughs> I think we've lost out on this one and we need to get our sense back. 
Uh, and uh, do you think it's wrong for us to pour uh, our uh, resources or millions in uh, arms and sending them to Ukraine? Oh, to- to- totally, because all that's going to do is it's going to aggravate uh, the Russians even more. And, um, you know, there could come a stage that if it does continue, they may well take the western part of Ukraine as well. You know, the media had always said, oh, no, this is an attack to take over the whole of Ukraine. That was an absolute nonsense. Mm. If you look at both from a military strategy planning point of view, and if you look at from the Russians, were, they were interested in taking eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region. And they've virtually done that now. So, you know, the best part of Ukraine is in Russian hands. And they would probably want to consolidate that and stop and say, look, you know, we've learned some lessons and I think you've learned even bigger lessons. Let's stop. But if it doesn't stop, I suspect this could escalate into a major war where they take where and you're right onto the borders of uh, NATO. And uh, I'm if good sense was to prevail, we would stop here and think. If not, I think it could get worse. And I think it will move to the east as well with Taiwan because China and Russia are now working, uh, as NATO have said, that they will now challenge China in the South China Sea. Mm. Well, what does that tell you? <laughs> you know, NATO is not Western European uh, alliance. Now it's gone into uh, the Asian. So things are getting bad, I'm afraid. All right. Now, you mentioned earlier about uh, Ukraine joining NATO. Why can't it join NATO if it wants to? You know, cause these are these are military alliances, and every major nation has uh, red lines. Uh, you know, um, there's a Monroe Doctrine that the Americans use to say nobody come in, can come in our backyard. They can't even touch it, uh, not even economically and otherwise. And they never, that's why the Cuban crisis occurred, etc. So if the Americans can do that, then surely a big power like the uh, Russians, they can also say, look, enough is enough, right? But in this case, remember, they were promised that NATO would not expand to any of the countries that were given up in 1991. And every country was included virtually into NATO against that promise. So Ukraine was the last one. And if people can't understand that and think that the Russians are absolutely stupid and we can break Russia up and do whatever we want, Mm. well, that's their stupidity because Napoleon and Hitler both learned that Mm. the Russians are a very proud people. And they eventually say enough is enough. And I think Putin said enough is enough. Yes. He didn't mind the Ukraine you're joining the European Union. He had no issues with that <laughs> economically. Did. The yes. issue was that if you join NATO, then you're going to be right on our borders in the underbelly. The Baltics had already joined NATO, and so that was too late for Russia. So no, it was a totally unfair move by uh, the Western mm-hmm. world. Uh, uh, Dr. Iqbal, time is on our, not on our side, so thank you very much for your insights and highlighting the duplicity of it and your... Uh, not so. Uh, by the way, I'm not paid by Putin or anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so Thank you. I need to do my own research. Indeed. No, no, we, 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 we take that uh, as a given, of course. Thank you very much Thank for joining you. us. Pleasure. Thank you. Right, Rulisa, uh, yeah. we're going to go to our next segment of the show, which is the Community News. Weekend World. Community News. The Holy Quran says, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes, that you may know one another. Mm. Uh, Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. So Islam does not differentiate between different communities. 
it, in fact, it's, it says that we created you in that way so that you can thrive and, and have that differences and live on those differences. Uh, Declan Henry holds a Bachelor of Arts degree uh, in Education and Community cool. Studies and a Master of Science degree in Mental Health Social Work. Declan has worked extensively with young asylum seekers and refugees and, and has a wealth of experience in social work. An author of several books, including Why Bipolar, Voices of Modern Islam. He's discussed those books with him on our show previously. And his current new book, Gypsies, Roma, Travelers, A Critical Analysis. Peter Tetchell, a human rights campaigner, wrote about it, uh, complimenting about his works and, and the positive works that he's uh, done about the gypsy, about the GRT people, mm -hmm. uh, community. It's always a pleasure to have uh, Declan on our show, and he's joined us this morning again. Good morning, Declan. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Sorry for the delay in connecting you. We had some connection problems, I think. Uh, That's all right. But, but we resolved right. that. Now, uh, Declan, you, the books that you often write are very human in the sense that you write about human issues of the time. Uh, often you present the challenges people of communities face. Uh, and in your new book, Gypsies, Rome, Romans, uh, sorry, Gypsies, Roman and Travelers, on a, are all also on a similar line, aren't they? It's about community of people and how th they face their challenges and, and, and the various aspects of their lives. You're absolutely right. I always choose contentious subjects. I always choose topics that people perhaps don't know very much about or they may have very fixed discriminatory views about. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, my books tend to be documentary-style books, and they do tend to be quite educational. It's about uh, debunking misconceptions that people have about various communities and so on. Mm. And, and you often write in a very neutral way. You just want them to present their voice uh, as they see it, rather than you making a judgment on any of that. What was your main reason about writing about the GRT community? They don't seem to attract positive publicity, do they? No, they don't. Uh, I mean, when you look at uh, gypsies, Roma and travellers, uh, when you look at them as, as ethnic communities, because they're really, really three separate communities within, when we say GRT communities, I mean, they are, they're each individual uh, ethnic, uh, each one is an, an individual ethnic community. But I suppose collectively, the, the type of racism and discrimination, and I would say hatred that is directed towards them is probably the last acceptable form of racism that we have here in the UK and, and indeed other parts of the world. Because, um, yeah, there is, there is a genuine, uh, there's a genuine ignorance because people know very little about their history, mm. know a little bit maybe about their customs and traditions, but there is such an entrenched hatred towards them. Yeah. Uh, and, and a fear as well. Mm. So that... Um, and that's kind of what fascinated me to to want to write uh, write about them and to actually meet them in person. Yeah, I mean Peter Tetchell, uh, a human rights campaigner, has given an introduction to your book, and he says a much needed and most valuable exposition of the vibrant culture and the shameful abuses suffered by one of Britain's most marginalised and disadvantaged disadvantaged minorities. I mean, there are a lot of minorities who suffer suffer as well. The, G, the GRT also does carry 
a little bit of baggage of bad publicity, as I, as I mentioned, as, as you just pointed out as well. But tell us a bit more about the the GRT. What what did you find out, and what were your challenges when you when you met these people when you met this community? Um, well, they were, they were far more open with me than I expected. Even though there was probably sometimes a little bit of hesitancy to, in in coming forward because it, it's about trust. You know, there have been. You know, there have been the, the, the continues to get a very bad press here in the UK, mm. indeed in mm. other parts of the world. So, you know, they are suspicious when a writer comes around, uh, comes along, and, uh, and and says that they want to interview and write about uh, about their lived experiences. So, I kind of broke it down because you know I interviewed all the dif- the different types of, of gypsies and travellers. I mean, here in the UK we have Romani English gypsies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Roma, Roma, you know, who come probably in the last fifteen to twenty years who come from you know Eastern European countries. So there, the, 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 you know, there's a large percentage of them here in the UK now, and also in Ireland. And then I, when when it came to travellers, I wrote about Irish travellers. And I went to Ireland and interviewed some there and some that live here in the UK. So all the different communities, I, I, I you know, I want because they're different history. I mean, there's a very different history to a Romani gypsy and an Irish traveller. Right. The, 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 um, and they have different customs. You know, they have their own languages, um, their own culture. Um, I mean, there are similarities on you know strong family networks. There is uh, similarities. In, in, in traditions, in, in gender roles, male and female uh, gender roles. Um, there's similarities in storytelling, music, dancing, and so on. But th- there are also very, very distinct differences. And I have highlighted all of those in, in the book. Uh, when you say um, about, I agree with, with the first part where you said, yes, I do like to talk to people and I do like to, for people to, you know, to get mm. their voice across and for them to fully give their opinions. But that doesn't say that I, I haven't challenged in this book and that doesn't say that I skirt around really contentious issues because there are many, mm. you know, you, mm. know, um, Ashton, in, you know, in health, education, um, crime. And so on and so forth. You know, these these are really, really contentious issues. You know, uh, in the sense that you know, if you look at young GRT people, um, education, they still they still fall behind in education. Yeah. I mean, very few of them complete more than the first year at secondary school. Was um, it was it difficult to approach them to discuss them and to discuss these issues with them, or did you find it that they were quite welcoming and quite? Uh, uh, favorable, although, as you said, sometimes they're, they're a bit wary of uh, press or people coming to speak to them. I, I tried to be as impartial as I can, but that doesn't say that I wasn't challenging because, um, let's say, around education, I suppose it, it's one thing to be able to blame all the schools mm. and blame the education system and blame the curriculum. And, and don't get me wrong, there are faults. There are faults in the education system and in the curriculum um, in the sense that it doesn't really reach out and teach that much about hardly anything about GRT yeah. history and so on and forth. But um, historically, generation after generation, there is uh, there is a reluctance. There is a reluctance towards towards education and, and, and going to school. Mm. And I, I, whilst I took on some of the reasons, 
I didn't take on all of them. I didn't buy into it entirely. Right. Uh, and and, and that's, that's in many other areas, in many other topics that's discussed in the book. I do listen to people's viewpoints. I do share them. But if I don't agree with them and there is a, a counter-narrative, I certainly give it. Yeah. I mean, looking from the outside, one my initial views are that they're a very hardworking community and and yes. as you pointed out uh, very family orientated people these are good yeah, values yeah. aren't they yep yeah. i beg your pardon sorry i didn't catch the last bit uh, these are very good values uh, to have as a community uh, and and it's something that they can promote more oh you're absolutely right i mean they're they're very very family orientated and you you, you certainly see that around baptisms, weddings, funerals. You know, communities really come together at, at, at a time of either joy or crisis. Um, very much so. Very loyal to each other. I, I, I experienced that once. Uh, I, I employed two Roman girl, Romani girls uh, in one of my restaurants I was managing at the time for, for a, a businessman. And uh, there were some issues with the wages, <laughs> and they hadn't been paid. And I, said, and I told them it would take about a week or so to resolve the issue. And then the, the very next morning, I had two big bulky guys at the door of the restaurant with a baseball cap, a baseball bat in their hands. <laughs> I hasten to say that the, the the money matter was resolved within minutes rather than the days, the weeks. Well, that, you know, like you say, we all like to get our we all like to get our wages on time. That's right, absolutely. <laughs> but but I found those girls very hardworking. But as soon as there was an issue, the family fully got involved and came to the yeah. support of the girls and. And, and, and I think yeah. rightly so, though I wouldn't agree with the means that they used. <laughs> and of course, you know, when you, I mean, I looked extensively, extensively at, at crime in the book, Ash, and, and it's, you, know, you know, again, this is kind of a label that people think that everyone in the GRT community is that they're criminals. Mm. And of course they're not. Mm. I would say the vast majority are law-abiding people. There are percentages of them that, that are, that, that do... Um, some terrible things and, and, and so on. But the majority, in my experience, in the research that I carried out, the majority of them are actually, you know, hardworking, mm. law-abiding, you know, just want to live their lives and, 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 and you know, be as happy as anyone else. Mm. Declan, you, you don't think that the DRT community are in any way responsible for their own image, you know, this image that many people have of... Uh, of being fearful of them. I mean, they camp where they want to, at times, leave rubbish behind, uh, a nuisance for, for the public. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they do come in for a lot of criticism uh, in that sense. And then there's a bit of a contradiction there because, you know, um, Romani gypsies and Irish travellers, by tradition, they're very, very clean people. They have, you know, strict rules on cleanliness mm. and strict rituals. But... Um, you know, when you look at the statistics, I mean, at the moment, there are probably around 300,000 travellers in the UK. And when I say travellers, I mean Romani gypsies and Irish travellers. Roma don't tend to travel. They're, 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 they're fully settled. Um, and at 25,000, there are still 25,000 um, travellers in this country that have no legal place to stay. Uh, because common land isn't available to them anymore, and there is a chronic shortage of, of permanent and, and, and transit um, camping sites. Um, 
So therefore, they, you know, they have to travel around. And yeah, yeah, their, their answer to that, when I put that to them, is that um, the councils aren't always obliging in the sense that they don't, you know, have the facilities to discard mm. with, with, with some of their rubbish. Yeah. So the, the facilities aren't there. That, um, you know, they, they go along, they, they make temporary homes here and there, and of course they're, they're not made to, to feel welcome, but neither are the facilities there to, you know, to, to, to help, help them. them. Yeah. yeah. So more support from the councils would help them, and they yeah. in turn could uh, help be more helpful to the community at large. Uh, your last assessment of your work with them in terms of uh, getting this book published, etc. What was what would be your final assessment of the Roman uh, gypsies and travellers? Um, more spend against than thinning, in the sense that I think you, when you go back to crime, I think you have to look at hate crime, the amount of hate crime that they have to endure, mm. the amount of daily discrimination. And racism that they have to endure is 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 really at epic levels, mm. and it's, it's it's more so than any other community. I mean, of course, you know, if you look at racism in black people, if you look at Islamophobia, yeah. and so on and so forth, if you look at homophobia, so, uh, there, there is nothing compares to the level of as I, going back to what I said at the beginning, the the, the entrenched hatred. Um, and the ignorance and yeah, people just don't want to, society. Just seems to want to wash their hands of the GRT communities and the, the, the yeah, they yeah. just want they uh, don't want to know them. Yeah, and the language used, you know, we we, we stopped using the P word for racism mm-hmm. or the N word, but they still are stuck with certain words which reflect uh, which are racist words really against this community. With the Albert, you, 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 it's interesting that you mentioned the P word because, I, you know, uh, in mainstream society, I don't think people have stopped using that. No, you're I right. Think it's you're right. Acceptable. Yeah, you're right. It's the last acceptable form of racism in the sense that mm. nobody would use the N word anymore about mm. black people. Mm. But um, when it comes to when it comes to travellers and gypsies, they will they will drop the P word uh, as quickly as anything, mm. and, and nobody corrects them. Nobody, you know, nobody would say, "Well, don't, hold on, yeah, you know, that's that's." that's the language you should be using, sure. you know, use something a little, a little mm. more appropriate. One uh, last yeah. small question. Uh, very quickly, Declan, is there a, a religious code that the GRT communities follow? I beg your pardon? Is there a, re- a religious code that they follow, oh, yeah, um, Christianity or? So, very much so. Um, you know, religion is really one of the key values amongst the GRT people. Um, you know, if you look at Roman gypsies, you know, they, they have traditionally either belonged to, you know, the Church of England or the Catholic Church. Uh, Roma, they're mainly Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. And there might be a small, a small number of, of Muslims, uh, Roma Muslim, oh. uh, in certain Eastern Bloc countries. Romanian, Irish, like Irish travelers are traditionally, you know, Roman Catholic. But, however, here in this country, here in the UK, mm. there is a growing born-again Christian movement um, that originated first in France, and it's called the Light and Life Movement. Right. Now, this, this is a born-again Christian evangelical movement, and that's really gathering momentum. Um, all, um, all of the groups, Gypsies, Roma, and Traveller, they, they, they seem to be um, veering towards this, this, this movement, which has... Um, 
At the moment, I think it is over 40,000 members here in the UK. Declan, mm-hmm. uh, we're sorry to cut you short now because we're coming to the end of the show. But thank you very much for sharing your book and good luck with your new book, Gypsies, Romas and Travellers. Uh, and uh, we'd love to have you back on our show soon. Thank you so much. And can you please remind your listeners to, to, to Google me and look at my website, which is www.declanhenry.com. Indeed, and they'll see they'll be able to see all the books that you have been written uh, writing, including the one uh, Voices of Modern Islam. Oh yes, that's a very important one. Indeed, Never it forget is. that one. <laughs> the only book, yes. the only book written here in the UK that has put Ahmadiyya Muslims on par with all other Muslims in the world. Absolutely, and uh, we, we thank you so much for it. And I was great taking part in that research of yours. Thank you. Thank so you much. very much. Thank you both very much. Thank Thanks, you. Thank as you. always. Thank you, Thank you. Right, that was Declan Henry with his new book, uh, Gypsies, Romans, and uh, Travelers. And do have a look at his website, as he, as he mentioned, and you'll see the uh, mod- voices of modern Islam. Right, sports review. Weekend World. Sports review. Assalamualaikum, Shahid. Sorry to keep you waiting. Uh, I know Waleed is eager to start with the football <laughs> again already, but I'm going to try to ward him off if I can. No, no, go uh, ahead. Yeah, but we've got the, the cricket at the moment. We've got the one old series draw uh, with the decider today, uh, the T20 by the ODI squared between England and South Africa, and with the retirement <laughs> of Ben Stokes uh, from the ODI uh, cricket. That's right. The South Africans are on, obviously here on tour and with the ODIs, uh, one, one, uh, standing 1-1 one, one, and the third one to take place today at Southampton. Mm. Uh, and they couldn't be separate in the T20 either, 1-1 one, one as well in that series as well. Yes. And a lot, lot to look forward to. And as you mentioned, Ben Stokes is uh, no longer with the T- or ODIs anymore. He's retired from his last game at Durham. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you were saying that the unsustainable schedule that has got reason for his retirement. And I think a lot of players have actually said that, and it's just it is already. In fact, in his case, it was he was away from the from the game for 16 months on mental uh, right. health on mental health issues. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not surprised at his decision to be honest with you. And, and as captain of the test match, obviously of the test uh, uh, as well, yeah. test team as well, then he has this. Obviously, he can't give it all. He says, and that's the case. I think passing on to Josh Butler. I think he's got a case to. He's got a case there, isn't he? That uh, too much cricket is bad. But at the same time, although not the case now, in the earlier years, uh, cricket wasn't a very uh, financially sort of uh, attractive sport, and but now it is. Ah, indeed. I think that as far as remuneration is concerned from cricket, people can pick and choose. I mean, with uh, people who are playing in the IPL and that as well, obviously they want to actually reflect on that and concentrate on things like that. And so the international scene as a as a course of action matter then obviously it suffers because of that and people are not able to give their full and that's the case I think in case of Stoke. Yeah. What about Pakistan Sri Lanka? A very close series there and uh, quite uh, quite an interesting one. If anything, Sri Lanka should have been two 0 up, but Pakistan did wonderful in the first set to come back. Yeah, I think this was I mean, the fact that they were playing in Gaul, which is a, a venue that is very much a, a spinner's wicket. Let's uh-huh. uh, not forget that just before that, Australia had visited uh, towards Sri Lanka and uh, had a 1-1 series as well uh, draw. 
So 2-0 up, uh, sorry, as you said, it could have well gone in the Sri Lanka's way 2-0, but Pakistan fought back on that and uh, excellent innings or mm. really a historic innings. But Dula Shafiq really got them that victory in the second match. And the, 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 the differences in these, uh, the results, and if you see them, they're quite high results. I mean, the uh, Australians, uh, in fact, lost uh, by an innings in in a game as well. So, uh, and here, in the first match, I mean, four, four wickets, but the second one, it, uh, at one stage, it looked at Pakistan might want, they were thinking in terms of not just victory, <laughs> but also at least getting away with the draw. Mm. But in the end, I think it was too much. And a, a two, four, 246 defeat was, I think, on the card. And 1-1 one, one is the series, I think, Pakistan will get. One thing one must not forget is this also points towards the World Test Championship. And both of them are still in that. If it had gone either way, it could well have gone uh, quite a long way towards getting into the World Cup Series final. Yeah. So whether or not that has precedent, but nevertheless, there are something at stake in terms of actual results of the series. Yeah. This Prabhas Jayasuriya suddenly has come up. He, 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 he was brought in into the Australian match. And since then, he's not looked back. He's taking wickets left, right and centre. Yeah, that's right. I mean, once they, they start doing that, they're on the roll and they said at in ground like goal. Mm. Uh, so that goes well for Sri Lankan in the future on wickets like this. Yeah. We have also had the World Athletics recently and uh, the African countries did very well. Ethiopia, Jamaica, Kenya, all in the top four uh, behind the United States. Uh, but some really good athletics. There was uh, the, the African... Uh, Nigerian Amazon breaking the 100 meters hurdles record, Sweden's Duplatis, the pole vault, and McCoughlin, the 400 meter hurdles record. Some really interesting athletics. Yeah, this is in between obviously the Olympic years and that two years, and obviously the World Championship, and uh, like this does obviously always well for this in the future. Mm. Uh, so it, when it comes to the world, uh, to the Olympics and so forth, then that's when it really matters. But nevertheless, to pull results out like this, like you said, the Africans have come up. And not just uh, the usual ones as well. I mean, like you mentioned, Nigerians in the hurdles. So yeah. this is something that something that they're not just uh, sticking to the usual thing that they're renowned for, also going diversifying to other events as well. Yeah. And that's the case. In some of the cases, obviously, some of these uh, people are from different countries and having uh, adopted nationalities. Yes. That, <laughs> I think a lot Kenyans won a lot of medals, but not necessarily for Kenya. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah. just one it last one. Right. Jake Whiteman, fantastic 1500 meters. Someone for the future. Oh, I think he, he is one for the future. And that uh, uh, it always was for them for... Uh, and to come up like this straight away would be something extraordinary for him to build on this now for future. Indeed. Uh, sorry the time has come to an end. We went quickly through that. That was fantastic. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you, Walid. Thank, uh, thank, thank you to our listeners and thank you to Azhar and Declan Henry as well as Dr. Iqbal. Yeah, and to our listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.